Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. You are listening to Notion Capital Podcast FM, the voice of European enterprise tech. Next up is our show, Go to Market Heroes, with Andy and his amazing guests. And talking of being a hero... Hello everyone, a new episode of Go to Market Heroes, but a bit of self-promotion first, as every podcast show does. You can follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Google Podcasts or any other podcast app. And if you do that on Apple Podcasts, you could give us a few stars. I'm sure Andy will be very, very happy. He likes getting stars. He's a sales guy after all. <laughs> and uh, for all this, simply search for Notion Capital on your favorite app. So Andy, another episode, another hero. Who is our hero today? Well, well, today I am joined by Kamal Kerpalane, who is in, are you in, you're in Boston right now? I'm in Boston right now, yes. Ah. Been in Boston for five years. <laughs> is it still cold? It's nice this week, but it's going to be cold again next week. Yeah. But that's life in Boston. I know. I've been there when it's been really cold. London is similar, actually. We thought we were in the spring and then we went back to full winter. <laughs> that's true. So let me introduce Kamal and why we got him on uh, Go to Market Heroes here on the Notion podcast. So Kamal's got a, a really interesting background. If I was to pick out some notable companies in his background, and he's going to be too humble to say these things, so I'll just say them and kind of embarrass him a little bit. So Trilogy, Bizarre Voice, where I met him, Touch Commerce, and he's now at Miracle and was very early at Miracle, so we can chat about that later. And I really want to dive into kind of how he got into sales, how he thinks about excelling in sales, and really how to lead in sales as well, because he's got a ton of experience. He probably doesn't realize he's got more experience than most people. And the reason I wanted to get Kamal on here is we met at Bizarre Voice and Kamal kind of showed me the superpowers you can have in sales in terms of the little differences can go a long way. And I remember one thing that really stood out was he would often go on a sales call and be sat in the car on the way back and he'd be sat there with his sales team and they'd be hammering out the proposal and the pricing right there and then. And they turned speed into a competitive weapon. It's kind of like by the time the prospect had got back from their meeting room to their office, they typically had their pricing and proposal ready to go. And they'd be like, wow, this guy really wants my business. And I was always impressed by that. I think that worked really, really well. And that passion shows through in what you, you still do in sales. You know, sales can be a, a thankless task and you're obviously still loving it. Well, we'll dive into that, let's see if you're still loving it. I think so. So, Kamal, I'd love to start with, you know, how did you get into sales? Sometimes it's by accident, sometimes it's by design. What's the story of getting into sales for you? Yeah, so I've always been very passionate about technology. I had a very brief career as a stockbroker because I thought I'd enjoy it and I was completely wrong about it. And I got into technology at a speech recognition company, which was doing sort of what Siri does today, but we were doing it in 1996. And I was in much more of a, a technical role. And I realized two things. I enjoyed speaking with people and I was not as good at technology as I thought I was. So the, the natural role I fell into was what we then called technical pre-sales. Today's called sales engineering. It's basically the person that tags along with the sales rep, showcases the technology, focuses on the technical win. And I did that for seven years. And I, I basically got tired of feeling like I was doing all the work and seeing the sales reps get the big commission checks. And, and that's when I raised my hand to say, you know, I, I want to do sales. It really doesn't seem that hard. What is interesting is I failed miserably in my first job. I was there for two years, didn't sell a single thing, and really learned a lot about the craft and why 
tagging along and doing the demos made it seem so easy. But then when you actually have the number and you have the objectives and you're responsible, it actually is a lot more difficult. Thankfully, things have turned around since then. And I've learned a thing or two. And the last 20 years have been great. Well, that's good to see. I was going to ask you as well. So who invested in you? Who kind of taught you the sales skills? You know, who were the people that said, hey, okay, you've had a rough patch, but here's what you need to know to be successful in sales. Was it a company? Was it a person? I'm just curious what got you to the right level. I I got very lucky in joining this company called Trilogy back in the late 90s. And very few people remember Trilogy today, but it is hard to overestimate how influential Trilogy was back in the day. And mostly in terms of the quality of people they attracted, they would go to the top universities, find the top computer science professors, and you know take them out to dinner and say, who are the one or two students that really blow you away? And then they'd go after those individuals and get them on board. And it was you know routine that everyone they wanted to go after would have an offer from McKinsey and Goldman and some other great company, and they would end up coming to Trilogy. So we had a really good people, and Trilogy also spent a lot of time investing in their people and, and developing their skills. So for example, we, we were all shipped out to New York to take presentation classes with this private firm that typically worked with CEOs and politicians to help them improve their presentation skills. And we were a bunch of 20-somethings learning how to articulate our value proposition to a C-level audience. And and that network, so I left Trilogy in, in 2003, that network has been invaluable. So uh, almost every job I've had until recently actually came through the Trilogy network one way or the other. If I think of you in terms of standing up in front of a packed room with senior people there and making that pitch... Did that come naturally or was that part of the training? How did you develop that ability to talk peer to peer with senior people? Very early on, you know, when I was in high school, I I was selling things door to door in Norway where I grew up. And it was always uncomfortable. Like I was selling Norwegian flags door to door to small businesses and getting them to carry it. So you'd have to walk in with your box of samples, ask for who the owner was, deliver your pitch and hopefully walk out with an order. And I think from doing that at a very early age to being in technical pre-sales where you'd have to stand up and do demos, I, I think I got used to that very, very early on. So that's never really been a big issue for me. And I, I forgot that when I first met you, I was thoroughly confused as to which passport you were using, which language you were using, often which country you were in. Yeah. Quick explanation of that. Yeah. The nutshell version is, you know, my parents are from India, which explains the way I look. I was born in Hong Kong. They left India before I was born. They moved to Germany when I was very young. My first language that I learned was German. I went to the German school system until I was 12. We then moved to Norway, where I had to learn Norwegian, went and completed my, I guess, A-levels, you would call it, in the Norwegian school systems. Became a Norwegian citizen. I, I was born a British citizen because I was born in Hong Kong. And then came to the US for university and by accident ended up moving to Paris for a job and ended up staying there for 17 years. And then then I've recently moved back to the US. I know it sounds really confusing, but it really isn't. And how many passports have you got now? I'm just Norwegian, obviously. (laughs) (laughs) Got it. In terms of developing those sales skills as well, what was the career plan for you? Because I had 
a podcast the other day where we're talking about kind of career paths and that difficult decision between do I want to stay an individual contributor? Do I want to build a team? Do I manage? Do I want to lead? Do I want to go into a different discipline? What has it been for you? I've always been very interested in in staying close to the money where most of the value is generated for a company. And I think the closer you can be to it, to deals to be driving the sales execution, the more direct impact you can have. At some point, you obviously want to be able to clone yourself, to develop other people that do the same things that you do. And I think that part I I really enjoy. I think a lot of sales management is about a lot more than development. Uh, It is also about keeping people in check, doing the pipeline reviews, and a lot of the underlying mechanics, which I think are important, but personally, I'm less passionate about. So my focus has been on staying as an individual contributor, driving a lot of the direct deals and revenue, but also working closely with the rest of the team and making sure that the skills and learnings that you've developed permeate throughout the organization and don't just stay with you. Yeah, you just kind of hit us on something there. When you were interviewing, you know, we all we all kind of look at ourselves and think, hey, we're we're pretty good. Let's go do more of us, you know. But in building that multidisciplined, kind of multi-thoughtful, multi-everything team, any tricks or tips? Because a lot of people listening to this will probably be at the point of investing in their first senior salesperson, which is costing serious money for them. I completely agree with you that there's no single set of magic skills that makes somebody amazing. And one of my favorite interview questions when I interview salespeople is, is to say that, you know, you've surely worked with a lot of great salespeople during your career. What are the one or two things you feel you hands down do better than most? And that gives me some insight into where they think their special powers are coming from. You know, and and a lot of times that's, you know, I go much deeper into preparation or, you know, I've got an amazing Rolodex or, you know, those are the things that give you insight into where they think that those skills lie. And then I, I flip the question around and say, on the flip side, what are the two or three things that you feel you constantly struggle with and you need to develop and other salespeople do better than you? And that that answer gives me a lot of insight into their self-awareness. And the typical sales rep is going to talk about all the things they do that is super amazing. But then when you toss them, you know, what do other people do better than you? They really can't think of anything. And for me, what I like doing is looking for people that have been very successful in their career, but have got different answers to the first question. And, and I think when you do that, you build a team that complements each other rather than having a team that excels in doing just one thing very well and, and doesn't do a great job at the other things. Yeah. And have you, in managing teams yourself, sales teams, et cetera, have you kind of honed now how you hold them to account. And I always use this phrase that, you know, selling is 50% art and 50% science. You know, there's the science of like, hey, if I just do the right things in the right order, then good things tend to happen. And then there's the art of, you know, hey, if I bring my personal superpowers to bear, then good things happen as well. How do you measure that in a team? And one of the ways I'm leading on this is is forecasting. I think that a lot of people just find forecasting hard. You know, where am I going to land this month, this quarter, especially with new sales teams? So, you know, I think if we zoom out on sales management, I think there are four things that need to be top of mind at all times. So, you know, it's hiring people, developing people, getting them to execute, and then helping them forecast accurately. So I think if you are in in sales management, you're constantly thinking of hiring. You're always looking for great salespeople. 
And every time you meet a great salesperson, you're pitching them on your company and trying to get them on your radar. The developing part is very important because just because somebody has been an excellent salesperson somewhere else does not mean you can just plug them into your organization and they will automatically perform very well in your organization. So no matter how great they are, I think that it's very important to spend some time developing them, helping them understand your sales culture, your value proposition, what's worked, what hasn't worked. At Miracle, we've invested a lot in creating uh, Miracle University. We're developing a sales uh, excellence program to kind of transmit some of that tribal knowledge. And then really the emphasis on execution. And here I think helping new reps shadow more experienced reps really see what actually happens on the ground, not just the easy stuff, but you know how do you handle objections? What roadblocks do you run into? And once you've done all of that, hopefully they've gotten the skills and the experience to do a great job at forecasting, that they are able to say, okay, this deal, yeah, I really think it'll happen this quarter, or it won't happen this quarter, but I feel really good about next quarter, and here's why. And you're absolutely right, Andy, that forecasting is always a challenge. And this is where I think you need to have the individual contributors work closely with their managers and really have the manager dig into the details to validate whether the forecast is real or not. Is the, is the rep being too optimistic? Uh, are they are they being too cautious? Are they sandbagging? And, and that's where I think that experience really comes to bear. And just to finish this section then, how do you think sales as a discipline has changed over the last 20 years? You know, I'm just thinking the tools we have now in terms of market intelligence and the ability to prospect and just the marketing sales tech stack, et cetera. You know, we, we've come on leaps and bounds. Do you think selling's fundamentally changed, especially in this work from anywhere time, or do you think the core things are still the same? So I think that, you know, even though I've been in sales for my entire career, personally, I can't stand salespeople. So, you know, when people reach out to me and they're trying to sell stuff to me, I find that super annoying. And I appreciate that a lot of people might perceive what I'm doing that way. And the way I try to address that is not focus on selling. I focus on solving problems, right? Nobody likes salespeople. But everyone likes to engage with people who can solve a problem for them. And I think the issue is that requires a lot of hard work up front. You need to do your homework. You need to understand what's going on with the company, what's going on with this particular individual, how long have they been in the company, where are they in their career path, what are they trying to do, how are they trying to make their mark. And I think where technology helps us today is you've got a lot more information at your disposal, right? So with LinkedIn, with Sales Navigator, a lot of other capabilities, you're able to, if you're motivated, you have access to loads of information. You know, I I look at the earnings calls and it's fascinating because you get to talk to some of the most powerful executives and have them grilled by the most hard-nosed investors. And you get to listen in on that conversation in real time for free. I mean, this is a complete treasure trove of information that you've got access to. So I think what has happened is the good salespeople realize that they're in the business of solving other people's problems and helping other people be successful. And they make great use of the resources available to them so that they do their homework and they show up prepared and they're able to build a relationship of a trusted advisor that everyone aspires to be. But then they they show up and go with the vanilla sales deck for their first meeting after all. So I, I don't know if that's fundamentally changed the sales profession. I think good salespeople have always looked at themselves as problem solvers. But the the new technology stack has certainly provided a lot more resources for people 
to actually execute on the trusted advisor role. I know that you've been pretty good at the extended sales team. So senior management, right up to the CEO, get them involved in the whole pursuit. How do you do that? How do you corral people? So, I mean, there's one thing asking them to do it and there's other thing them wanting to be involved. You know, how do you get people to want to be involved in your sales cycles, especially the people that are not salespeople, you know, the engineering team, the product people, the finance people, whatever it may be. I think there are a couple of elements here. One is a lot of good salespeople have this hero comp. They think of themselves as, you know, I'm James Bond. I go into a very difficult situation and I come out with a deal and, you know, how I do it is a complete mystery to people and I'm amazing at it. And, you know, for me, I think that's mostly a sign of weakness in the sales process because you might be successful with a couple of deals, but you'll probably lose more deals than win deals with that approach. And a lot of larger complex sales cycles require multi-level selling. And I think there is a perception among great salespeople that, you know, I don't need to bring in the CEO. I know as much about this as they do. And and I don't need to bring in this person because I can handle that. And that may or may not be true. But I think it's important to understand that the prospect perceives these roles differently. It's going to be much easier for me to get higher into an organization by saying, I'd like you to take a meeting with our CEO so that you can understand what our longer-term strategy is. We've also got some insights into how the industry is evolving and really make it something that would be valuable for them to engage in. And I think what makes it interesting for the rest of the team is when they see that the conversation that I've been really well set up and it's not a waste of their time. So if you if you bring an executive into a meeting and the prospect doesn't know why they're meeting the executive and they don't have any interesting questions or insights and it doesn't advance the deal at all, it's going to be really hard to get that executive to help you out on a future sales cycle. On the flip side, if when you bring them in, there was a critical point that needed to be resolved for the deal to move forward. The prospect had some very thoughtful questions. They felt reassured and you could immediately see the impact from that meeting. I think that's how you get the credibility so that when you ask people to get involved in your deals in the future, they're more than happy to do it because they know it's not a waste of their time. And at the end of the day, executives always like meeting other executives to understand what their challenges are, to understand how they can help them and to broaden their network. So it's a win-win for everyone. If I look across your career, we've got Bazaar Voice, we've got Touch Commerce, we've got Miracle, You've kind of lived a lot of the e-commerce revolution kind of through through those companies, yeah? Social, e-commerce, marketplaces. How do you think e-commerce has changed in all that time? You know, what are the key constant themes? And by the way, there's new players coming along all the time. To me, it looks like it's probably one of the most rapidly innovating spaces. And now with everything that's happened with COVID and work from anywhere, plus everybody doing home shopping, etc., it's like... Four years of digital transformation got compressed into 12 months, it feels like sometimes, you know. You're the one person coming on this podcast that's kind of got that view. I think increasingly the e-commerce, the e-part of e-commerce is disappearing and it's just becoming commerce. It's just becoming how customers engage. And we saw that during the pandemic, there were things that had no electronic component to it before at all, like, you know, going to the local bakery to pick up bagels, you would go and say, I'd like a dozen bagels. And now there's a sign, a QR code, you get on your phone, and you're doing an e-commerce transaction to buy something from a bricks and mortar store. A lot of restaurants, that that is how you engage in. And I, I think that a lot of people will realize that those things are actually more convenient, and those things aren't going to go away. So I think the 
idea of there being an electronic component to almost all commerce activity is here to stay. And I think the transformation is really going to be the deeper integration of e-commerce into day-to-day life. You know, I think we're, we're going to see more things like Instacart for other things where you can buy immediately and, and get something delivered to you within a couple of hours. We had a, um, a sales meeting with a large PC manufacturer in, in Texas, and my colleague, she forgot to bring her power brick, her charger for her Mac, and she was able to order something from the Apple store and get it delivered within two hours. And what's interesting is that had this been for the manufacturer who we were actually visiting, whose headquarters we were at, it probably wouldn't have worked out quite that fast. So I I really see a, a lot of the innovation being there to make the experience even more seamless, to provide an even better customer experience, provide a better experience across the entire life cycle, buying, delivery, returns, customer service, post sale. And a lot of the new players that we're seeing are focused on various slices of that and really going deep and making that experience world class. And if I've done my sums right, you've been a miracle for eight plus years now. Is that right? About a dozen years ago, I started getting into angel investing as well. So I started my relationship with Miracle as an investor and advisor eight years ago. And I believe I was still at Workday at that point. And then when I left Workday, that's when I actually joined them in an operational capacity. And I've been there in an operational capability for the last six and a half years. And how has that changed? And and the bit that I'm really interested in, and listeners will be as well, is particularly the go-to-market motion. And within that is, how do you organize yourself? How do you define your ideal customer profile? How do you think about pricing and packaging? And I'm sure that's evolved over the last six and a half years as, as the business has built, matured, and grown. I joined them with the express purpose of helping them expand to the U.S. So I was the first person on the ground in the U.S. Our U.S. office was me, a laptop, and a cell phone in a motel room. And we are we just this month crossed the threshold of over 100 people in the U.S. So it's been quite a bit of growth. I think the, the sales motion involved a lot of trial and error. So especially in the US, the the marketplace term itself wasn't very elevated. A lot of people associated marketplaces with uh, eBay and Amazon, that they thought of it as cheap, as potentially not very credible, like a lot of fake products were being sold on marketplaces. So when we were approaching high fashion brands and talking about marketplaces, that conversation really wasn't going very well because they were afraid that it would denigrate their brand. So we spent a lot of time educating the market and frankly, we had to make bets on, you know, do we do we double down on the marketplace term and hope that we're going to be able to elevate that term to to mean something else? Or do we call what we do something entirely different? Do we just refer to it as range extension or like dropship 2.0? We decided to double down on the marketplace term. And I think our bet has proven itself to be right. You see Gartner now releasing studies and analysis of the enterprise marketplace segment. And, you know, if I think of how we did it in the beginning, in the beginning, we just wanted to get the value proposition out. So we would go and talk to anyone. We'd attend all the trade shows. We would work really hard to book wall-to-wall meetings at every trade show. So you'd show up and you'd be talking to people. And it, it wasn't so much trying to sell them, but present the idea and really listen carefully to their feedback and objections, and then incorporate that into 
your next pitch and, and the next time you articulated it. I think in the beginning, our initial handful of customers were companies that had independently of us come to the conclusion that they wanted to do a marketplace. And we simply had to persuade them that of all the different ways to do it, Miracle offered the best option. And you know, we had thought about all of the edge cases. We had built out very robust technology. The technology was proven. It was working. And then we had to go after the people where we were convinced the value proposition would be great for them. But they had no idea. They didn't even know what a marketplace was. That was quite interesting because we would approach uh, the sales cycle in you know, the classical way you'd say, here are our investors, these are our customers, here's a case study. And the way I think about it is, you know, if you go on a date and you're like, hey, this is a picture of my parents, here's my resume, these are all my friends on Facebook, and here's a testimonial from my ex-wife, that's not really going to go anywhere, right? Because the, the other person is saying, I don't even know if I like you. Like, all this information is completely irrelevant. So we were showing up at all these meetings talking about how credible we were for a solution that they didn't think they needed. And just like, you know, if you are going on a date and you are interested in persuading someone, what you really need to talk about is them. How is their life going to be better with you in it? How is it going to be different with you in it? And we fundamentally changed the way we would show up at these meetings. Instead of starting with like, here are investors, here are a bunch of random logos, here's a case study. We would say like, look, you know, let's pretend this meeting went great and we got married and you decided to implement us. Let me show you what your life is like four months from now and tell you the story. And we, we would call these value walkthroughs. And it was really very meticulously researched based on who they are as a brand, what their strategy is, who they're trying to attract as a customer, what challenges they're facing. And once we were able to present it to them and they, they understood and they're like, okay, now we want to work with you. Now, at this point, you can start talking about all the other content, like, you know, here are investors, here are the case studies, here are all the logos. That's the right point where it makes sense. So we had to kind of uh, rethink the way we would go about educating the market. And then in parallel, we evolved the way we would structure deals and pricing quite significantly. And I think my one takeaway from that exercise is that too often you spend time negotiating with yourself. You're like, oh, no, you know, this isn't going to work. Nobody's ever going to go for it. And I think the right answer is let's try it and see what happens. And what we found is that at the end of the day, what matters is the value you deliver. If the value you deliver is significant, you're able to structure the commercials in a way that makes sense for your business, that you can you can show traction to your investors and to your employees and get predictability in your ability to invest without it impacting your ability to close deals. The one thing I'd pull out of that that I'm curious about is rev share, because I've always found that it sounds great in theory, but it is often hard to make stick in practice because you get into these kind of little arguments about, you know, what was the revenue and what's your share, et cetera. Is that a smooth process now, RevShare? So I think in all conversations around pricing, it's important that the value is aligned with where you're extracting pricing. And I think with the RevShare, the concern is that, hey, you know, once this is up and running, I'm doing all of the work. It's it's my team that's running things. Why am I paying you an increasing amount of money? And I think there are two things that we do that differentiate this. One is we do work side by side with our customers to really help them make the technology and drive value for them. And And, you know, the analogy I like to use is just because I'm able to sell you a great gym membership 
does not automatically mean that you're going to look like Brad Pitt, right? Like you actually need to do something with the technology to get the results you're looking for. And what we propose is, you know, yeah, we can totally give you the technology, say, there you go, Andy, good luck with it. Hope it all works out and never see you again. And the likely outcome is you don't get the results you're looking for. You feel like that investment wasn't great because you didn't get a lot of return on that investment. Or we could say, listen, what I'm going to do is I'm going to package up this amazing technology with expertise and put in a whole team and infrastructure around working with you to leverage the technology to make sure you get the results you're looking for. And then as you're getting the results you're looking for, I'm going to charge you a rev share on that so that our interests are aligned. You know, the harder we work to help you achieve your goals, the more money we make. And once they see that working, once they see that the results they're getting are really linked to the insights and the efforts you're bringing to the table, a lot of those objections go away. Now, that, of course, presupposes that you have a very tangible and crisp way of identifying the incremental value you're delivering. And again, with our technology platform, it's very straightforward. You know, the transaction actually need to be coming through our technology platform. And once you see that, it becomes very obvious that, yes, it is Miracle that's delivering this value. And I, I'd be curious, what, what are the characteristics of a successful marketplace? I genuinely have no idea. You know, if I want to build my own marketplace, what are the things that I need to do to make sure it's successful? You know, first off, you need to have some kind of demand traction. You, you must have a property where people are coming to your site looking for products. And you ideally have a suspicion that there are many customers looking for things that they might not be able to find on your site. And they're opening up a new tab, going to Amazon and completing the transaction there. So the hypothesis of if I had a larger assortment, more long tail assortment, I would be able to drive lift. Now, ideally, you want to create a, a symbiotic relationship where as you increase the demand side audience and the supply side products that you're able to offer that creates a, a virtuous cycle that the additional products you bring will bring the incremental traffic that you otherwise would not have had. And we actually did a symposium not very long ago that you can go and look for where we had some of our earlier customers like Best Buy Canada that had been working with us for six years now talk about their marketplace. And what was really interesting to me is when Thierry Hayes-Saburin, their SVP of e-commerce, was talking about during the pandemic, they would see a spike in products like thermal blankets, a product that they don't actually sell, right? So the pandemic happened, third-party sellers listing these products on their site. You've got customers coming and looking for these products, and you've got Best Buy Canada making money on a product they didn't buy, they didn't source, they didn't do anything on, they, they barely knew existed, and they were able to deliver a better customer experience and drive more revenues and be a channel for suppliers of those products and help them reach customers they otherwise would not have reached. There's probably a couple of stocks in the public market that I wish I bought, and one of which is Shopify. And I am just astounded. I kind of look at it, I thought, well, Amazon's running away with things, and now Shopify, what is their market count now? 120 billion? I mean, they're, they're huge. How do you see that dynamic now? Is are the alternatives and disintermediation coming into effect? You know, how's that landscape going to evolve, do you think, over time? The search for alternatives to Amazon, where people are looking for a different type of buying experience, is going to be good for both the likes of Shopify and the likes of Miracle. So what Shopify does is it gives the vast majority of Amazon marketplace sellers the ability to disintermediate Amazon and have their own e-commerce experience that is delivering 
a lot of the same capabilities, but build a direct relationship with their customers rather than going through Amazon. What Miracle helps our customers do is provide an extended assortment of products without needing to go and buy all of those products and warehouse them and have the inventory risk. And just like Amazon, rather than you know making your money by buying low and selling high, you make your money by connecting supply and demand delivering a better customer experience and charging the seller network. And if you look at the capabilities that are required to facilitate that, you need to have the ability to very seamlessly onboard the product catalogs of hundreds or thousands of third-party sellers, ensure that they meet the quality requirements of your site, transform that data Then once you receive the orders, again, seamlessly route the orders to the right party, split up the orders into multiple sub-orders and ensure the right customer experience. And what's interesting is that you need to do all of this with a lot of automation and scale. You know, if you're doing this for a handful of products with a handful of sellers, you can maybe manage this in Excel. But if you're looking to scale this, you need to introduce automation. But that that also needs to go hand in hand with the ability to control and curate the experience. You never want to be in a position where products that are not appropriate to your brand are being sold or a customer experience is being delivered by a third party seller that is not aligned with your brand promise. So if we can get all of these elements right, where you can onboard products, where you can manage orders, we can do this with high levels of automation and scale while maintaining control. What you're essentially enabling is you're enabling anyone to be able to deliver an endless aisle or Amazon-like assortment without the massive investment that you would otherwise need. Hey, so one thing I've got to ask, because you've done the journey of going Paris to Boston. So if you think about it, the well-traveled route that a lot of people think about is where U.S. companies want to build in Europe, and you're kind of doing the, the European company building in the in the U.S., and you were the person that arrived, put the flag in the ground, and said, we're here. Selling at its core, I think, is the same. You end up at the same result, which is a signed contract for something that you both agree you want to work on, yeah? But the way you get there can be different across different countries. I mean, you've sold in France, you've sold in Germany, you sold, I think, in the UK, you grew up in Norway, and now you're in the U.S., Any subtle differences? I think the way deals happen in the different countries is quite different. I think the way people in France do business and the way people in Italy do business and Spain do business. I've done a lot of deals in Latin America. That's quite different. I I think the differences are gradually homogenizing and and becoming more of the same. So I'll, I'll give you an example. The U.S., because it's a very large country, but culturally very homogenous, from, you know, going back 15 years you were able to do sales cycles through WebEx and go to meetings and have remote conversations that would actually result in a significant deal signed contract without ever meeting face to face with the prospect. Until very recently, you know, it would be almost impossible to do this in Latin America. People in Brazil and Mexico and Chile, they want to see you. They want to have a meal with you. They want to know who you are. They want to know whether they can trust you. They want to look at you in the eye. And only then, after you've built a relationship with them, will they do a deal with you. A lot of it was similarly true for places like France and Italy and Spain, where I think almost every sales cycle I had in those countries started off with an in-person meeting and mostly concluded with in-person meetings as well, with very, very little remote. I think what we've seen in 2020 with the pandemic is that a lot of these other places have realized that you can get a lot done over Zoom these days and that the face-to-face meetings are not quite as necessary as people would have thought. But I do think that in Europe, 
in general, particularly in Southern Europe, relationships are a lot more important. So how you get introduced into an account, whether it's through a trusted relationship or through a cold call. The other thing that I think is very important when you are building cross-country teams, so it's either U.S. companies trying to sell into Europe or vice versa, is to have strong alignment between the host country culture and the place that you're selling into, right? So if you're a French company trying to sell into the U.S., but you you don't actually have an understanding or appreciation for how a business there is done differently, and you just want to take your way of doing things and impose it on the other country, or maybe what's more typical is the other way around where an American company says, here's how we do things in the U.S., and this is how things need to happen in Europe. Uh, I think that's where you get into the most trouble. And I think the value that I've brought to the companies I've worked for is because I've actually spent a meaningful time in the U.S. and I've spent a meaningful time in Europe. I actually understand how things are done in both sides and I'm able to explain to the other party how the other party is looking at it and and kind of be that go-between and educate people on both sides of the pond. And I think that's what you really need. So for any company in the UK thinking to expand in the US, you know, here are the things not to do. Don't take your top performing UK rep and give them a one-way ticket to the US because you're going to lose out on the revenue they could bring in the US and you're going to lose out on what they're going to do in the US because they're not going to be successful. I would also not just go and hire a very expensive rep in the US because it's going to be hard to manage somebody thousands of miles away. They're going to be expensive and you're really not going to know whether they're going to be successful or not. The model that I've seen work very well is to have a senior executive actually pick up and move with their family to the other region to make things work. And that's what we did at at Miracle. So Adrian Nussenbaum, the co-founder of Miracle, actually moved here with his family alongside, you know, at the same time when I moved here with my family. And having the co-founder of the company be fully invested in making the U.S. a success and also have the ability to influence decisions on the other side of the pond and say, no, this is what we really need to be successful in the U.S., I think works well. I see a lot of that happening with European companies coming to the U.S. I don't see many American executives flying over and settling down with their families in Europe or not enough. I I think we need more of that. Yeah, that's good insight. That is very good insight. I think that that formula for how to move into new markets is something that a lot of businesses struggle with, genuinely. I get asked that a lot personally. So we've talked a lot. I've got a couple last questions then just to finish off. The one I always like to ask is, who do you look at now out there, person, company that you admire? You look at them and think, wow, they're doing something really special. Not that you want to join them or anything like that, but you just admire them. I've for a very, very long time been a big admirer of how Apple does product launches. Like I would, uh, you know, from the days of Steve Jobs all the way through to now, I would look at every one of those events multiple times, not not just about the product, but I, I find that the way they engineer the presentations from the way they do the graphics to the way they choose every single word and the time and energy and effort they put into it is, is really amazing. I mean, the whole idea that you can get hundreds of millions of people to dial in to watch a 35-minute commercial of one of your products and then immediately submit millions of orders is mind-boggling, right? And yet they do it so well. I've used that a lot to influence my presentation. So I, I find that when you're communicating, and essentially that's what sales is, you're constantly communicating to people, I find that there are some well-known mechanisms, right? So if you have something interesting and complex to explain, there's nothing that's better than a well-written 
two-page document. And, you know, we see that with Amazon abandoning PowerPoint for doing that you know, and, and insisting on, on written documents. When you want to explain something in person, having a visual aid or a graphic that makes your point is hugely helpful. And I think what we've seen with the emergence of the consulting industry is the bastardization of those two mediums, right? So now you get slides with loads of text that actually can't be read as clearly as a document and are lousy to present, right? And yet that is what most sales slides look like, right? Like it's this page with lots of text and bullets and no complete sentences, no narrative structure, and some crappy graphic. So the way I've looked at what Apple does and how it influences my presentations is my presentations are completely useless as a standalone deck. If somebody says, send me your deck, they wouldn't even know what they're looking at, right? So what I do now is I send them a video of me presenting that deck. Or if you actually want to know and you want to educate yourself on your own time, I'll write up a document. I'm not going to send you a deck because that's not going to be very meaningful. And for similar reasons, I'm a big fan of Amazon's management and particularly the whole narrative structure and everyone sitting down and reading for the first 20 minutes to get on the same page. You know, everyone knows about it because Amazon makes a very big deal of telling everyone how great they are. And yet, surprisingly few companies actually say, let's give that a shot. Let's actually have people show up in meetings uh, having written out what they want other people to discuss. I think that's a, an obvious one for me. And then, you know, most recently, Brett Hurt from um, now Data.World, the co-founder of Bizarre Voice and prior to that of Core Metrics, he tweeted out something that made an impression on me. He said that at Data.World, he, um, for the first time, shared the entire unredacted board deck with the rest of the company. What he had said was that this is his sixth company, and what he's learned as an entrepreneur is that the most important thing is the quality of team you bring. And the way to attract the best team is through transparency and openness. You know, people like to work for companies where they know what's going on, where they feel like they're a valued stakeholder. And I find too many companies have got too many layers where, oh, this is the board deck. No, you're not going to see it. Oh, no, no, this is financials. You wouldn't understand. We don't want to tell you about this. Or no, no, this is company confidential. And I find that in the day and age where top talent has got a lot of options, you want to create a company culture of trust and openness to attract and retain top talent. So that's another uh, individual that I, I think I could learn a lot from. Excellent. Well, Kamal, thank you so much. I really appreciate the chat. I think you've been very frank and open. And I hope the listeners are going to get some little nuggets out of that in terms of their businesses and their journeys as well. Thank you very much. Great chatting with you. Thank you, Paul. And likewise, I hope your listeners find some value in this. Oh, they will. <laughs>